Thank you for lifting your voice today. Beautiful. And Josh spoke correctly. Our church family is experiencing a time of the realities of loss. Uh, for those that may not yet have heard, um, last Sunday, uh, late afternoon, uh, with his wife Helen right by his side, our dear brother Irvin went to his rest in Jesus. And, um, and we're grieving that. And uh, we pray for the family. And per Irvin and Helen's uh, choice, uh, there, there isn't going to be traditionally what you would think of as a memorial service and such, but uh, on the Sabbath very soon, we hope to have a, a time of honor and remembrance uh, here in our worship service. Our brother Lee White um, is faithfully approaching his moment of rest as he's being kept comfortable. And so we pray for Lee in these precious moments with his family and encourage you to lift them up in prayer. And then, praise God, there's the, the other side of the story, if you will. Our brother and sister Letts and Leah Imponwain welcome their fifth child, their little girl, on Monday. Uh, Kiara, I believe, is the name. I hope I got that right. And so we uh, praise God for that ad addition, and, and I almost expected to see her here today. Uh, if you know Leah, you know, yeah, that wouldn't have been too surprising, but, uh, but we praise God for uh, their family and what's uh, the good things God has done. Pastor Sarah mentioned it just briefly, and I want to take just a moment to add to that, but indeed, here, just in short order, February 8th at 7 p.m., a Friday evening, we have the, the really wonderful privilege of hosting an evangelist, Emmanuel Beck, called by God to profess, to proclaim this Adventist message, this prophetic message, and help people know Jesus and make choices for Him. And we're excited about this. We're, we're privileged to be able to do it in part through your giving and through large part through the conference uh, support. And so we receive funds from the conference and in sacred trust that we engage in and do the best we can with our opportunity. And I'm here to let you know that not only are you wanted, you're very much needed. Uh, you're very much needed. Uh, I won't go through it all over again, but that sheet of paper that is in your bulletin about the, the various ways that we need help, uh, we need you to be praying. We need you to plan to just offer your attendance as, as often as you are able. Uh, we need you to be part of the invitations and in your bulletin, uh, you have one of these uh, little cards that not only is an invitation to you, but something you can use to invite another. Um, and uh, we need you to be willing, prayerfully, to step outside of what is often stepping outside of a comfort zone to kind of say, hey, listen, my, my church is hosting something, and, and I thought maybe it would be interesting to you and to just make that invitation. If you want to make an invitation in a little bigger way, uh, there'll be a supply of these, and there's a supply of these in the foyer. When I say bigger way, much bigger way, right? This is the mailer that will be going out, and I need you to be praying. 80,000 homes in our area will receive this invitation. And for every home, it will be a blessing. Uh, many will see it, and it will just be a moment of seed planting, but 
Many who are searching and seeking, this is the time that God is calling them and they might just exercise their opportunity. So be in prayer, but as powerful as those invitations are, there's many here today because of things like this, even more powerful is when it's not delivered by the postman, but by a brother and sister of this faith. And so we need you uh, to help us maximize the opportunity uh, that is before us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to offer a, a word of prayer to invite your spirit and your help. Lord, I, I pray earnestly that you would uh, help me to communicate well and, uh, and efficiently in the time that we have. Uh, Lord, if you could maximize the time and help it to work out well, I, I, I pray for that gift. And, and Lord, help each person here to be able to, to hear and to listen and Lord, the, 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 the scripture, the testimony that I have to share today, I pray that you would use it to impress upon our hearts, my heart included, whatever it is you desire to impress. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to a movement with a message for these days. And I pray that you help us to step into that in even a fuller, richer way. In your name I pray, amen. Last Sabbath, Pastor Josh brought us into Revelation chapter 2. And the scripture that was the primary scripture reads this way, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, for my name's sake, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. There is this one issue, that you have left your first love. In this letter, God is initially speaking to the literal Christian believers in the church of Ephesus, but far broader than that to all believers who follow God in all ages. And God says, I, I noticed your labor for me. I, I noticed your endurance and perseverance for me. But I also noticed that you're doing these things from a position of having lost your first love. Your first true motivation. The right motivation of a heart of love for God. When Josh and I talked about it with Pastor Sarah, about spending some time on that idea of first love, I found myself asking the question, what does it look like when someone is serving the Lord from a heart that is driven by their love for Jesus? What does it look like when someone is laboring and persevering and enduring from a place of, I have my first love still intact? As I thought about that, I think we see a strong example of this in the Bible character, in the person of Saul who became Paul the Apostle. I think here we see an image, a, a story, an illustration of someone functioning out of that first love passion. The Bible reads this way, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from the high priest to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, any followers of this Jesus Christ the Messiah, both men or women, he might, Saul might, bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
But as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a, a light from heaven flashed around him. This is his first love moment. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And so Saul got up from the ground, and, and though his eyes were open, his, he could see nothing. And, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This was his first love moment with Jesus. God then in that moment called a man named Ananias to go and speak a word to Saul. We're told that Ananias departed and entered the house and, and after laying hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, he has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized and he took food and was strengthened and for several days he was with the disciples there in Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. He had his first love moment. And then he received a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And immediately, he had totally shifted his life's passion to begin to proclaim Jesus to the world around him. And coinciding with that, almost immediately, Paul became a target of persecution and difficulties. From the very beginning, Paul says, I will follow Jesus. I will move into my first love experience under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know it's going to be a hard path. Look at this. Just a few verses later, 23 and 25. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates. Please remember this. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, from the very beginning, Paul began to endure hardships, but he was functioning from a place of motivation, of, of true passion, to tell the good news of Jesus. And, and the difficulties that Paul was, was enduring through the list that he provides by testimony was truly incredible. Later in 2 Corinthians, he writes kind of his trial resume. Five times I've received the Jews' 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Remember that too, right? He was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I've spent in the deep waters. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor, and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such all those external things, there's been also the internal hardship of daily pressure of me because of my deep felt concern 
for the church. And do you know all of these things were not a surprise to Paul? He knew that being an evangelist for Jesus was going to be a difficult path. It's not going to be an easy journey. When Ananias was sent uh, to minister to Paul, God told Ananias a message to deliver. Back in Acts chapter 9, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In those days before he stood up and began to preach Jesus, God showed him how much he would suffer, and yet because of his first love and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he moved into that message just the same. This figure, the Apostle Paul, the stellar figure of the New Testament early church, wow, what, what motivated him to go through such such extreme hardship in such a faithful way. Well, one is because he knew that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a sacrifice of love. In that moment of his first love experience, that conversion on the road to Damascus, he realized that Christ died for him and that sacrifice on the cross compelled Paul to tell others about the love of Jesus. I think Paul was also driven by gratitude. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. And he did have a pretty ugly track record. And he realized that he had been saved by this, by this Savior. And, and gratitude for salvation must have fueled his devotion and dedication in the cause of Christ. And then, I have no doubt he was also compelled to endure what he endured because of the power of the gospel to transform lives. The apostle's own experience and the radical transformation that he in, experienced in that moment with Jesus compelled him to want to see others transformed and changed. And so it's an amazing moment. The Apostle Paul, someone functioning in that first love power and baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, and, and, and what he was able to accomplish for the cause of Christ. But when I consider the Apostle Evangelist Paul, I am inspired I'm also very humbled. And I quickly find myself tracking along the lines of, well, you know, he was directly encountered by Jesus in a pretty dramatic way, and that's a little different than my experience. So, yeah, different. Or, well, you know, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit in the way that it happened in the early New Testament church. In our humility, in our, oh, I don't think I can ever measure up to that, we begin to think, well... That doesn't really happen in our modern world. That was then. This is now. I want to share with you a testimony, a story that is much closer to now. A true story. A well-documented story. Around 1879, a man by the name of Seth Bond heard the eternal gospel of Revelation 14 preached by the Advent movement. Seth lived in the region of Northern California, and, and there he heard Jay and Loughborough, he heard Cornell, he heard Merrick Kellogg preach and teach this message that has been entrusted to the Advent movement. 
he, he heard about Jesus' gift of salvation and, the, and his promised prophetic soon return. He learned about Jesus in the heavenly sanctuaries or a heavenly high priest. He heard about the law of God and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He heard about Jesus through the lens of the Advent prophetic message. And Seth Bond, after hearing this message and, and analyzing and checking his Bible carefully, he came under conviction of the, the Advent gospel message and, and he was baptized joining the Seventh-day Advent movement. And he immediately put his hand in service to the Lord. He became a well-engaged leader in that the record tells us that we can find that alongside working alongside James and Ellen White, he helped began to bring the message to the Oakland, California area. Seth Bond had a brother named James. Yeah, James Bond. Far better Bond than the one you may be previously familiar with. So Seth had a brother named James who was married to a lady named Sarah, and they were sincere believers in Jesus, but Seth wanted to share with them this present Advent message with his family, and that's exactly what he did. The journals suggest this, that in 1880, just after James and Sarah Bond had kind of settled on a, on a new property, a farm, that Seth was invited to come to their home as a guest. And this was his first opportunity to, to visit them since he had joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, and Seth came with pockets filled with tracks and a heart filled with zeal and determination to carry this present truth to his brother James and his family. But James was a very busy man with a large farm. He drove a 10-mule team hitched to a big gang plow but Seth didn't let that stop him. Seth went out into the fields to begin his message of sharing with his brother. And while he was plowing, he's telling his brother about his new faith. And he followed his brother back into the barn, telling him about his new experience, his first love experience with Jesus through the Advent message. And he continued to talk to his brother James all the way in the house. And after a couple of days of this, James's wife Sarah grew weary and said, Seth, we love to have you visit our home, but unless you can stop talking about this Sabbath business, I'm going to have to ask you to move on. To which Seth replied, Sister Sarah, if you can show me just one text in the New Testament that implies that we are obliged to keep the first day of the week, then I will say no more. Well, that's easy, Sarah said, and on a Sunday morning, she induced her husband to postpone his plowing until they could find that text. And together, they read through the New Testament, searching and searching and searching. And four and a half days go by, and they're searching and they're searching, and they come to the last verse of the book of Revelation. They look at each other blankly. No text could be found. Saturday morning, before sunrise, James Bond went out and he fed and harnessed his mules, preparing to plow. He came back in. He held family worship. They ate breakfast together, and then he went out back to the barn. And about 9 o'clock that morning, his wife looked out into the field, and, and she could not see uh, James. The, the plow was idle, and fearing that James had been kicked by a mule, she hurried out to the barn, and there James sat on a box reading some of the Sabbath tracts that his brother Seth had brought him. 
James, aren't you working today? No, Sarah. Since reading the New Testament through and failing to find that text, I've determined to keep God's Sabbath, and I am beginning today. Sarah had a real struggle for the next several hours, and she prayed constantly. But before the day had passed, she was at peace with herself and God. She was a member of the, the Baptist faith, a genuine follower of Jesus, being raised up in a devout Baptist Christian home. But in that present truth moment, that, that new uh, love experience, if you will, after much prayer, before that Sabbath day's close, she went to her husband and said, James, I have thought things through. Loving God and trusting His Word, there's only one thing for me to do, and that is for me to join you in keeping God's Sabbath holy. Now James and Sarah bond were part of the Advent movement and in that new love, that first love experience, they put their best efforts to work and service of the Lord right away. They began a church gathering there in their home with their own little family and anyone else who would come. And then not long afterwards, they portioned off a lot of their farm property, property that was income producing and food providing. They partitioned off a lot and built a building out of their own expense and planted a church. James began to share what he was learning of the health message with those in the community. And he was becoming kind of a medical go-to person. And, and in that Desire, Ellen White, affirmed him for his willingness to serve through medical ministry, but recommended that he go and get proper training. And so James left the farm in the care of his eldest son, and he went to San Francisco to become properly trained in medical ministry at the age of 42 for the sake of Jesus. And in 1904, after finishing his education, he returned home and converted more of his farm property into a health reform center sanitarium in service of the Lord. Now, James and Sarah had a large family, 10 children. James and Sarah, they were able to disciple their children and to catch that first love experience. And they were able to provide a level of Adventist education for their family. And most of the children went to Healdsburg College, present-day Pacific Union College. And of the ten, I don't have all their stories, but, but one became a doctor and he served the Lord as a medical professional and he started his own health reform center sanitarium in Arizona. Another, one of the daughters, married a doctor and the two of them engaged medical ministry. William... Their eldest, I believe, took over the family farm, labored for the Lord in his local church, the very church that his parents had established on their property. And two of their sons, Frank and Walter Bond, very close in age and close to one another, studied theology at Healdsburg, graduated, and began to work as literature evangelist in Southern California, going door to door to share this message by selling books both in English and Spanish there in Southern California. And all the other children, in some capacity or another, they all caught that love for Jesus from their parents and served the Lord. In fact, one of their sons, C. Lester Bond, 
was a prominent figure in creating the Pathfinder ministry of which we have young people here serving today. And another son, Harry Bond, he took an opportunity to go and do the work of evangelism in Cuba, Havana, Cuba, where he contracted dengue fever and died at the age of 21. James and Sarah Bond clearly found their first love in Jesus in their lives, and along with their large family, they imparted that somehow, and, and they all shine brightly for Jesus in this present truth Advent message. But I want to draw your attention to Walter and Frank Bond. In September of 1902, Frank and Walter Bond had attended a camp meeting in Fresno, California. And the featured speaker there was the then General Conference President, A.G. Daniels. And the main emphasis of this camp meeting was that it was time for the resources of the church in California to begin to spread its wing to help take the Advent message to the world. And Walter and James Bond had just recently heard Ellen White share a message about the need for missionaries and their heart was stirred. And when the invitation came saying, we need somebody to raise their hand and, and go be a missionary to various countries in the world, Frank and Walter Bond accepted a call to go to Spain. In the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, the publication of the church that edified the church in doctrine and teaching and, and reported to the church of, of the work of the Lord, how it was moving forward, in the November 25th, 1902 edition, on Sabbath afternoon, last, 19 of the 20 workers from California who were going to go to other lands gathered in the tabernacle in this city for a farewell missionary service. Elders A.G. Daniels and A.T. Jones had spoken on the purpose of the brethren in California to, to share their blessings and means with the vast fields abroad. And the outgoing workers addressed the large audience. And then it lists different individuals who were going to go to, to England and to, to Rome and to Africa and to France. And it says here that Walter Bond, his wife, and Frank Bond will go to Spain, confident of the Lord's guidance to tell the news of a soon-coming Savior in that land where... We have never before had a worker. By November, Frank and Walter Bond had accepted the calling of God to take the message to Spain. Walter had a girlfriend named Leola. They hadn't been together very long, but he asked her to marry him and to go with them to Spain. And she agreed, and they were married on November 12th. 1902 in rapid time frame far too rapid for my personal comfort level on November 26 they set sail Frank Walter Leola to London there in London they spent six months learning Spanish in the dialect of Spain and they proved to be quick learners having a rudimentary handle of the Spanish language from their time in Southern California. And then they were sent to Spain at the, as the very first missionaries, the very first evangelists, taking this message of the Advent movement to the people of Spain. 
The message of salvation of Jesus in a heavenly sanctuary as our heavenly high priest. Jesus, the one who has promised and prophesied to return. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. They enter into Spain to take this message. That's incredible to me. That their love for Jesus and their desire to share Jesus with others through this Adventist message compelled them to forsake all. You're going to need more education. We'll take more education. You're going to have to divest of most of your earthly possessions. We'll divest. You've got to be willing to enter a life with incredible risk, unknowns, no guarantees of pay or support, no even promise of success. The Lord has called us and we will go. Now you have to realize Spain in 1903. Spain in 1903 continued to be under centuries of dictatorship type government. And Roman Catholicism was the deeply entrenched state church. Just think Spanish Inquisition. Protestant Christians in Spain at this time were treated harshly. I mean, Protestants were protesting the entrenched Catholicism of Spain. And Jews were treated even more harshly as this country was steeped in anti-Semitism. In fact, just months after they entered Spain, the dictator of Spain enacted Sunday laws in March of 1904 dictating what you could and could not do on Sunday. And into that world, here comes Frank, Walter, and Leola with a strong prophetic Protestant message that included the Jewish Sabbath. They must have known that they were entering into a hard life in service to God. But this is what first love, Holy Spirit-empowered lives look like. And where did they begin? What was their first evangelistic effort? Well, they began with what they knew, literature evangelism. And so they set to work to translate certain books and certain tracts to, to be able to begin to share them with the people of Spain. And they spent months translating, figuring out this language and publishing and printing, getting people willing to print and to publish with very meager funds only to discover that due to the centuries of dictatorship and the stronghold of Catholicism in the day when even the services were in languages that the people did not speak and all of these things, they discovered that over 70% of the country was illiterate. I mean, in many ways, the people of Spain were still very much living in the dark ages of Romanism, superstitions, and church-state oppressions, and persecutions. There was widespread poverty and sharp class distinctions. And so they realized quickly their desire to just get involved in literature is not going to be very productive. So Frank and Walter started a school for boys where they would teach them to read and to write so that they, they could then share with them the message. Slow process, but undaunted. In Spain at the time of the laws, the only way to acquire a building for religious purposes is if it were for education purposes. And so they opened a school. 
dedicated to invest in lives and integrate into Spanish life and address the illiteracy problem so that they can mingle with people and gain their confidence and then share Jesus with them. And writing back reports of their experience in the Re Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, July 4, 1904. Some time ago, a boy of 12 years old started to attend the school. Previously, he attended the government school conducted by monks. After attending a few weeks, one evening he said to his family, I like these people's religion better than ours. The father said, well, tell us about it. What do they believe? And tracts and papers on the message were given them and Bible readings were held. And as a result, the mother is now keeping the Sabbath for which we thank God. The whole family attend our meetings. The harvest is indeed great, but the laborers are few. They have been laboring for nearly two years. And in two years of hard life and labor, they finally realized their first baptism. Reported in 1715-1904, Frank Bond wrote to the people in America reading of the Advent work in Spain, the work is moving slowly forward here. We are meeting much opposition from missionaries of the popular churches. But if God is for us, who can be against us? On June 29, we had our first baptism in Spain. Professor Wilkinson was there to perform the ordinance. Three precious souls followed their Lord into the watery grave. Two years. Three. And he closes with this. We are watching with intense interest the advancement of the message, and our prayer is that it may be quickly carried to all nations. Well, that's faith-based optimism right there. Frank then contracted a severe case of smallpox. And he nearly died, but through the medical ministries and the prayers of their small company and his ability to come back to the States for, for care and recovery, he was healed and returned to serving the Lord. Of that moment of Frank being deathly ill, Walter Bond, the brother, shared this in April 6, 1905. Now a strange experience awaited us. Strange because we had never passed through such a trial. Brother Frank Bond, who was living with us, suddenly sickened with smallpox and, and having no medical workers in Spain, when will they come, in parentheses, it rested with me to care for my ill-fated brother. Thus our aggressive work was stopped. After nursing him ten days, I myself sickened with fever, which, however, I am glad, did not develop into smallpox. Listen to this testimony. We are now passing through a great trial. Brother Bond in bed with smallpox and I with a continuous fever which reduced me to almost a skeleton after nearly three weeks in bed. Just as we expected recovery, I was seized with pleuro-pneumonia which brought me almost to the gates of death. But besides the doctor and brother nurse who came all the way from Switzerland and my beloved wife who tenderly cared for me, there were angels of God in attendance. Listen to this miracle. At the beginning of the sickness... We received a message from the Lord through my wife's mother who wrote this, saying that she was impressed to send us a scripture. John 11, verse 4, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. From that message, our Heavenly Father gave us faith to believe 
that word which is quick and powerful so under the most trying circumstances we never expected death even though I spent nearly six weeks confined to my bed said Walter and he closes the letter with this but we are of good courage knowing that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all the nations before the end and so despite our many difficulties we would cry victory for Spain Frank went to the States, to California, to convalesce and to get well. While there, his nurse was Martha, and they fell in love. They married, and she returned to Spain with Frank to rejoin Walter and Leola. They were again together in the country. They were called to bring the light of the Advent prophetic message, the light of Jesus too. And with renewed zeal and courage, they, they reopened that school for boys and it began to function. And, and some converts began to slowly still happen and some of them were being trained to be literature evangelists. And they began traveling to hold meetings in various villages and cities in Spain preaching this prophetic Advent message rooted all in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the three angels' message. And they faced so many hardships. Let me share one hardship that echoes the story of Paul. The report is in March 31st, 1921. It's an occasion where Frank Bond is reflecting back upon a very prior experience. Listen to this testimony. The feeling among the people was very intolerant towards evangelistic work. At once, the opposition determined to put an end to the meetings. On the second night, when I was in the midst of my discourse, his teaching... A company of young men, 90 young men, appeared in the street headed by a priest who began to stone the meeting hall. The noise was great. I had to cease speaking. The crowds increased and efforts were made to break through the windows and the doors. We were shut up like sheep in a corral surrounded by the threatening mob with stones raining on every side. Those who had come to the meeting were alarmed and women and children were crying. And the only thing I could think to do was to pray, said Frank. So I began to pray in the midst of the loud noise, lifting my own voice loudly and calling on God above the tumult. And within a very few seconds, the mob fled. The whole opposition dissolved. They had already broken the front door. They had broken a window on the front balcony. They seemed determined to get in as if to tear us to pieces. But the moment I began to pray, they fled in terror. There we saw the hand that intervenes just as plainly as John Wesley and his associates saw in the attacks and deliverances in the early Methodist days. No policeman had appeared on the scene. The sentiment of the town generally was behind the mob. The only thing we could think of that would cause such a sudden flight was the power of God. He surely must have spoken terror to their hearts of those people when we lifted our hearts in prayer to the living God. Dramatic. Serving Jesus is not easy. Later publications report Frank retelling the story that happened. 
They endured terrifying moments of God's deliverance and, and other times they marveled at God's power to change a life. June 21, 1906, Walter and Leola sent this letter to the Advent Review and Herald. And it said, Don Alfonso, a businessman whom we met two weeks ago for the first time, has for several years lived up very strictly to his Catholic faith. He had drunk holy water at all times, carrying a bottle of it with him. He had gone to Mass regularly, and the walls of his house were lined with the images of saints. On New Year's Eve, he went to Mass at midnight, taking with him twelve raisin seeds, which had been blessed by the priest. And as the clock struck in the midnight hour, he swallowed a raisin seed at each stroke, and at the same time offered a prayer to St. John for success during the coming twelve months. Yet his confession was, I have never had peace nor rest of mine. After one hour of study of God's Word, the images were all taken down, the use of holy water was discontinued, and Don Alfonso, instead of praying to saints long ago dead, began praying to the living God. We've had two studies with him since the first. Yesterday, he says, I have determined to follow Jesus and to keep his Sabbath, God helping me. He also said that he found the peace for which he had been looking. And Walter wrote, is this not a brand plucked from the burning? And then he closed saying, pray for this whole needy field with its millions in the darkness of idolatry. June 1st, June 21st, 1906. In November of 1914, to put it in context, at the onset of World War I in Europe, their determination and drive to serve the Lord took a dramatic and devastating turn. Walter Bond, the younger of the two, died November 12, 1914, at the age of 35, on his anniversary. The account given as reported by Frank Bond, a broken-hearted brother, on December 24th, 1914, says, These were the days of great anxiety for us all. We employed the best medical help we could, and we placed our needs before the great physician, and he at times brought relief to my brother suffering. But he did not seem to be his will to restore his servant. From almost the very beginning of his sickness, Walter seemed impressed that it might prove fatal. He sought the Lord earnestly and he claimed forgiveness of all his sins. At times his suffering was intense, but through it all he manifested continually those sweet Christian graces of the true child of God. His earnest desire was to have further part in the Lord's work. Suffering on his deathbed, functioning in his first love passion. I want to continue working for the Lord. And I want to be with my wife and my three children. But he seemed resigned to God's will. And his earnest counsel to his relatives and friends during those days will not soon be forgotten. But on the morning of November 12, our loved one fell asleep in Jesus. And we mourn the loss. And the loss to the cause of God in Spain. 
but our hope of the soon coming Savior and the resurrection of His people comforts our hearts. Our working in Spain is left very small. One ordained minister, one licensed, three Bible workers, and a small group of door-to-door canvassers trying to reach 19 million people. We have three or four hundred active attenders of our congregation trying to reach about 100,000 people. Will not one or more young ministers of the United States offer themselves to carry forward the work which death compelled my brother to lay down? And then it says this, Walter was born in California and he died in Baeta, Spain. And then from Revelation 14, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. The official report says that Walter died of peritonitis, a severe inflammation of the abdomen wall, painful. But Walter's wife, Leola, has reported that when she and her children were leaving Spain to come back to the States, that the medical doctor that attended Walter confessed that the local religious authorities had poisoned him by tainting the milk supply delivered to Walter. And some of Walter's last words to Leola and Frank in their journals were, I forgive my executioners. Walter gave his life for the people of Spain, and, and he was buried in that land in a Protestant cemetery that a few years later was desecrated and only restored in 2010. About a month before Walter died, he had written his last letter back to the States, not knowing that he was about to be poisoned and approach his death. And almost prophetically in his letter, Walter Bond wrote this, I am now in Baitha, a city of 14,000 inhabitants in the province of Andalusia. Here, one of our native brethren has been laboring for some time, but... It has been a continual warfare with the priesthood. Ignorance, superstition, priest, and fanaticism abound, making it probably the most difficult place that we have thus far entered. But even here, we hope for fruit. And then he closed his letter saying, I shall not write more as it is almost Sabbath. A few months later, November to April, Frank Bond returned to the city where his brother died. And having returned there to the most difficult place they had ever been, Frank Bond, he stands up and begins to preach this message to the people responsible for taking his brother's life. And five people accepted Jesus through the lens of this Adventist last day message. Can you imagine 11 years of hard service to the Lord? And just scratching the surface of some of their challenges. 11 years of hard service for the Lord. Walter dies at age 35 at the poisonous hands of those that would oppose the Advent message. In 1903, there were no Seventh-day Adventists in Spain. 
no one who had the knowledge of Jesus in the way the Lord has given us to present Jesus. And 11 years later, there were now only, or amazingly, 140 Adventists. 140 Adventist followers trying to reach out to a country of 18, 19 million people. Frank Bond grieved his brother, grieved that Leola left, and now Frank and Martha remained, and they picked up the pieces, and he labored for souls for the people of Spain for another nine years. And in those nine years, incredible hardships and amazing miracles continued to occur. Again, in the years after, Frank shared a story of the providence of God. He remembered, I mentioned to kind of remember that Paul was stoned. Also remember that Paul escaped as they were watching at the gate. Frank Bond shares this story. A short time ago, a man had become angered at the leader of our work and the Spanish evangelist and myself, Frank said. He seemed at once determined to take our lives. We weren't even aware of his purpose at the time, and it was time for us to leave. They were going to get on a train, and, and we were accompanied to the railway station by the evangelist. And we got into the train, and we bade the evangelist goodbye. And just as the train was moving away, I looked out the window, and I saw the man whose anger I had spoken, I, anger I have spoken, standing near the train. And I said a goodbye to him, and I noticed at the time a furious intent look in the man's eyes, but the train was moving, and we passed from sight. Later, they were discovered that this man was loaded with his weapons. He was armed and fully prepared to kill them, to take their lives. He was armed and fully prepared, but then he said, I did not see them, though I was standing at the entrance of the train the whole time. And as the three of us had come together to the train, it was impossible for him to understand how he could have been standing there and still have missed them. And in that moment, his anger cooled and he was impressed that the hand of God had intervened and it softened his heart and he later became a brother in the Advent faith. Frank would continue to labor for Jesus among the people of Spain for nine years after Walter's death. During those nine years, Frank and Martha had two children, Alice and Richard. And in 1922, Frank himself became very ill. He returned to America for a medical leave. He was exhausted and very malnourished. He began to regain his strength when the brethren in Spain sent word, Could you please come back, Frank? The doctor says you're well enough. So Frank went back to continue serving the Lord. But about six months later, Frank's health had failed again, deteriorated again, and he left Spain for the final time. And on April 25th, 1924, Frank went to rest in Jesus at the age of only 47. Two brothers who as young men heard the call of God on their lives to be evangelists in a gospel-dark country of Spain. And they literally poured their lives out for the sake of serving Jesus and proclaiming the last day eternal this Advent message that we have been blessed with. I have no doubt that when they rise in the resurrection, they will both hear their Savior say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. I have here in my hands Frank Bonds 1907 Bible. And many of you may be asking, how is it that you have Frank Bonds Bible? I'll tell you why I have it. Because a man named Seth Bond heard the eternal gospel shared by an Adventist preacher and he gave his heart to Jesus and he began to share it. So Seth shared this last day prophetic message to his brother James and his wife Sarah. And they investigated and prayed and they came under conviction and they joined the Advent movement. And in that renewed first love moment with Jesus, they began to serve the Lord by trying to share the Advent message with their family and with those that lived around. James and Sarah had ten children, and one of them was Frank Bond. Frank, with his brother Walter, fell in love with Jesus and literally poured out their lives, seeking to bring the light of this last day message to a people living in darkness. Frank and Martha had two children, Alice and Richard. Richard was four years old when his father died and then returned to the States and later was drafted into World War II. And he went through horrific experiences in the death march to Bataan, survived as a prisoner of war, but it shook the very core of his faith. But in the end, he and his wife Cleone discovered the beauty of Jesus renewed through this last day Advent message. And Richard spent his latter years teaching biology at Monterey Bay Academy in California. Richard and Cleone had two daughters. One daughter named Elizabeth Bonnie. Both daughters have a love for Jesus and continue to serve Him by doing what they can to share Jesus in their respective spheres of influence. But Elizabeth Bonnie, Richard's daughter, when she was in her college years learning about the history of her grandfather, the, the whole Spanish story, she says, I, I want to go spend a year in Spain in school. And so she traveled and went to Sagunta, the, the university college over there. And while there, she met a man named Roberto. And Roberto and Bonnie married, and they had two children. A boy named Robert, who knows and loves Jesus and seeks to serve Him to this day. And their second child... A beautiful daughter named Brenda. My precious wife, my gift from the Lord, who loves Jesus and as feeble as it seems sometimes, side by side, we're still trying to share Jesus through the lens of this Advent message. I hold Frank Bond's Bible because Frank is Brenda's great-grandfather. Between services, I read in the cover, Brother, what is your life? Is it in accordance with God? If not, why not today make Christ your portion? He loves you. And fain would have you wholly his. There is a welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior 
there is healing in His blood. If our love were but more simple, we would take Him at His word, and our lives would be all sunshine in the sweetness of the Lord. Two Christmases ago, Christmas 2017, Brenda and I were worshiping at a church in Barcelona, Barcelona, <laughs> on the Sabbath. A church that exists because of her great-grandfather and her great-great-uncle's labor for the Lord. And Roddy was getting restless in the worship service. It was all in Spanish, so I wasn't picking up a whole lot. And so I took Roddy out to the foyer. And there on the bulletin board was a remembrance article and photo of Roddy's great-great-grandfather, Frank Bond. Oh, Brenda and I pray that our children will carry on in their family heritage and choose Jesus as their first love and choose to serve Him. Oh, listen, church family. When you live this life with the first love of Jesus in your heart, you need to share it. When you belong to the Adventist message and recognize that it is still relevant, it is still powerful, and it still very much needs to be proclaimed as a light in this darkening world, then you're going to do what you can, just what you can. I know the story may not look like Paul, it may not look like Frank and Walter, but what you can, you are going to seek to share this eternal gospel of Jesus as revealed through this last day prophetic message that we have been given. The message has not changed. In fact, it is even fuller and richer and more relevant and urgent. And thinking of the people of Spain, our world is no less dark, though different darkness, secularism, but the world is ever dark and in need of this revelation of Jesus that we have been uniquely entrusted with as our part of the Christian community. The message hasn't changed. The need hasn't changed. We need to think about our place in the mission of God. This message is significant, and it's the reason we still do things like prophecies of hope. It's our calling, it's our mission. It's a piece of what we are intended to do. And so we still press forward in our desire to any way, any method, any way we possibly can to somehow get this message out there so that lives can be changed, lives can become grateful for salvation, and they can know the love of Jesus. It's our purpose to proclaim that Jesus is coming. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's our heavenly high priest. And that's why we engage in these all-in, full-budget, intense schedule, like prophecies of hope. So do you hear the call? Jesus needs you. And to what lengths are we, oh, and please, me, 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 to what lengths are we willing to go to be part of this message 
Are we living this life in our first love? In the baptism of the Spirit. In this image, Frank's Bible, and the picture is open to Revelation chapter 14. probably hard to understand not being some of you but not being in the ministry of preaching but it's something to hold this Bible right here in this moment and know that this Bible probably hasn't been used in a worship service in a very long time and so from this Bible that speaks so much to me about mission Revelation 14, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made the heaven, the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. I know our time has moved on, but I want to close with an appeal that Frank Bond wrote, and it was published in October 22, 1903. He's in the mission field, and he's, he's reaching back to his brethren in the States, and he's appealing for their engagement in the mission. So the details are for his time and place, but the essence of the appeal holds true. And so I invite you to listen to this and overlay our context of being a people here in Beaverton, Washington County, Oregon. Frank Bond wrote this. When one is comfortably situated and enjoying the many pleasures of home life and reads of the great distress and misery in distant lands of the teeming millions who are daily going down to Christless graves or they hear perhaps the story of the life of some unselfish missionary, he cannot but feel a burning desire in his soul to do something for those people. But no one else can, however, feel it so deeply and be so solemnly impressed by the conditions that exist as the individuals who are there. Not hearing from a distance, but are actively engaged. As we see these people in the darkness and superstition of Catholicism, with but little or no knowledge of a living Savior, not knowing that He is soon coming to make an end of sin and all of its consequences and to take His people home, our hearts burn within us. The question arises, how can so many millions who are so ignorant and careless with reference to their soul's eternal welfare receive the light of the gospel during the short period that still remains to this generation before our Savior appears in the clouds of heaven? As portrayed in Matthew 24, he wrote, We know this will be accomplished. For the 14th verse of the same chapter says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. The Lord says in Ephesians, Walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And then he closes with a very poignant appeal. 
Too many of us have been sleeping on guard. And it is high time to awaken. The time is allotted for the carrying of the good news to the world has, om- to the world has almost expired. But thank the Lord, it is still possible to redeem or make up for some of the wasted moments. In order to do this, every energy of our lives must be wholly devoted to the Master's service. There is room in this country with its millions of souls for hundreds of strong, self-sacrificing workers. Who will come over and help us? The rapidity with which the message goes will depend upon the relation that we as a people sustain to God and our nearness to Him, our nearness to God, will depend on the time we spend in communion with Him. We should at this time study carefully how the Lord used Jonah to warn Nineveh. And then he closes, we need the prayers of all God's people that the message may go with power in this country. Thank you, church family, for the minutes to share the story. Let's close our worship with prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, again I pray, impress upon our hearts whatever you so choose through these words and this story. Lord, call upon us and help us to stand and in any way, big or small, that you invite us know how to more fully enter into the precious, wonderful, first love service for your kingdom. In your name we pray.